Lindsay Taylor Goodhearts, a research fellow at the Centre for Jewish Studies in the University of Manchester. Today, we're thinking about the world of the first century CE and asking, what was everyday Jewish life like at the time of Jesus? The first thing to note is that the Jewish way of life at this period was not monolithic. Then, as now, different Jews had different ideas about what it meant to be Jewish and how to express Jewishness in their daily lives. What we know about Jewish society at this time comes both from texts, such as the New Testament itself, and from archaeological excavations. But both types of evidence have to be treated with care. Many of our texts were written decades or even centuries after Jesus lived, so they may tell us more about later periods than they do about the early first century CE. And archaeological digs might tell us about people who lived in the country or people who lived in towns, depending on where we dig. But we do know that those lifestyles were quite different. At this time, the Romans governed Judea and had been doing so since they invaded in 64 BCE. The Roman authorities regarded Judaism as a legitimate religion, which, like the pagan religions in the Roman Empire, preserved the customs of the ancestors and was based on ancient tradition. Like many of the pagans in the Roman Empire, Jews had a sacred temple. Though unlike some pagan religions, Jews only had one temple in Jerusalem. There they sacrificed animals in accordance with the rules in the Torah, the five books of Moses, and their pagan neighbours would have thought those sacrifices were quite normal, since they too sacrificed animals and birds to their gods. Jews prayed in the temple and elsewhere, and that was what their pagan neighbours would have expected too. However, the feature of Jewish belief that seemed very odd indeed to other Roman citizens was the Jewish insistence that there was only one God who should be worshipped, who had made the world and whose laws must be kept. Like pagans, however, many Jews also believed in the existence of immortal beings somewhere between humans and the one God, including cherubim, seraphim, angels and archangels. But their insistence that there was only one supreme God who had created the world was very unusual in the Roman context. Only worshipping one God went hand in hand with only having one sacred temple. According to the Bible, it had originally been built in the 10th century BCE by King Solomon, and it served as the focus of all sacrificial worship by Jews. In 586 BCE, the temple had been destroyed by the invading Babylonians, who then exiled much of the Judean population to Babylonia in modern Iraq. About 70 years later, there was another regime change when the Persian king, Cyrus, conquered the Babylonians and their empire. Cyrus allowed the Judeans and other peoples of the Babylonian Empire who had been deported by the Babylonians to return home and rebuild their sacred temples. And in about 515 BCE, those Judeans who had gone home, by no means all of them, finished building the second temple in Jerusalem. It was probably not as impressive as the first temple, given that the Judeans who returned had very little and were still under Persian rule, but it meant that sacrificial worship could begin again. Shortly before Jesus was born, the Roman-nominated king of Judea, the infamous Herod, 
rebuilt the temple as a huge and magnificent complex. And the base of the temple platform that he constructed then can still be seen today in Jerusalem. Part of this platform is known as the Western or Wailing Wall and is the most sacred site that modern Jews can visit. So Herod's temple, still counted as the second temple as it was a rebuild, would have been the one that Jesus was familiar with. The Gospels record several events in his life that happened there. What did the temple mean to contemporary Jews? Almost all of them saw it as a central element in their lives, the place where God was most accessible, where heaven met earth. There were some Jews who boycotted the temple, though, notably the group of sectarian Jews that we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls. But that was because they thought it was being run in the wrong way by the wrong people. In other words, not by them. They didn't question its sanctity and importance. It is hard for us today to understand how people could worship God by means of animal sacrifice. But if we take a look at the lives of those Jews who lived in the rural areas, scratching a bare living from the stony soil, we can get some idea of what sacrifice meant to them. The majority of the Jewish population of Judea were still subsistence farmers, often plagued by drought or working stony, poor soils, especially in the mountainous areas. They grew barley and wheat where they could, along with olives and grapes, and they raised cattle and sheep and goats. Pomegranates, figs and dates were also grown. Every animal they raised, every sack of flour they produced was familiar and the product of their own labour. Giving part of their harvests and flocks to God was not only commanded, it was a true offering of what was most important and necessary to these humble farmers. The Torah specifies the agricultural taxes they were meant to pay to the temple, though we have no way of knowing how many of these peasant farmers did so. The taxes, paid in kind, went to the hereditary priests or Kohanim who served in the temple and often did not possess any land of their own. In addition, the Torah also gives precise details of what should be offered up for different types of sacrifices, some of which were presented at the great festivals and others of which were more personal, offered as part of the process of repentance after committing a sin or as purification after childbirth, or in fulfilment of a private vow. If you read the laws of sacrifice in Leviticus, it becomes clear that each personal sacrifice represented the household economy of each family, farming family. An animal, usually a cow or a sheep, was accompanied by side offerings of flour mixed with olive oil and of wine, representing both the animal and the plant categories of the farmer's products. Very poor people, generally those with no land, could offer pigeons or doves instead of the more expensive cows and sheep. Since sacrifices could only be made at the temple, a sacrifice would have been a major event for each village family. They must often have spent days slowly walking to Jerusalem with an animal or group of animals that they had raised, carrying their homemade wine, their home-pressed olive oil, and their home ground flour for the accompanying sacrifices, along with provisions for the journey. We can imagine how impressed they would have been by the prosperous city of Jerusalem with its fashionable new buildings in the Greek style, and how overwhelmed they must have felt when they entered the huge temple complex after first purifying themselves 
by immersing in one of the many mikvahs, the stone-cut ritual pools that have been excavated all round the Temple Mount. What a contrast the towering structures of polished white marble and golden limestone must have made to the roughly hewn blocks of their one or two-storey stone-bit houses in the country. How the visitors must have admired the bronze gates of the temple donated by Nicanor, a wealthy Jew from far off Alexandria in Egypt. And how exciting must have been the ceremony when they dedicated their offerings, had them slaughtered by a priest, and then shared in eating parts of their sacrificial animal in the holiest place on earth, in a sort of sacred barbecue. Subsistence farmers wouldn't have eaten meat very often, so trips to the temple for a sacrifice must have been a highlight of their year. Perhaps the pilgrims might have watched one of the two daily public sacrifices offered on behalf of the entire Jewish people, or listened to the choir of Levites, who are described in later texts as singing a different psalm for each day of the week as they stood on the steps that led up to the inner courtyard of the temple. Only priests would have been allowed in the actual temple building itself, but our peasant visitors would have had access to the inner and outer courtyards where there was plenty to see and do. There would have been time for praying at the temple, probably asking for success in their farming work and health for their family and its animals. And afterwards, the family probably went looking for some exotic souvenirs in the city's shops and bazaars to take back as presents for fellow villagers. Then came the long trip home, down the rocky roads from Jerusalem to their farms in the coastal plain or up in the central and northern mountains. No doubt they repeated and discussed the memories and stories from the trip for months afterwards in the village, perhaps along with some new ideas that they had picked up from Jerusalem's many sages and the pilgrims from abroad. And no doubt Jewish town dwellers, used to the sophisticated Hellenistic culture of the urban centres, looked down on these country bumpkins. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 46, we have a record of Nathaniel asking contemptuously, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We don't know a, lo a lot about public worship in towns and villages outside Jerusalem. The New Testament mentions synagogues, and we have some archaeological evidence of early synagogue buildings. But perhaps surprisingly, it's not at all clear when, where and how synagogues developed. In Jesus's time, the word synagogue, which is Greek, means gathering together, could mean both a group of people, a community, or a building housing such a community. Obviously, the two are linked. Synagogues probably started as groups of people who met regularly for religious purposes that weren't linked to sacrifices for the temple. The earliest building identified as a synagogue is on the small Greek island of Delos and dates from about 50 years before Jesus' birth. The first purpose-built synagogues in Judea probably appeared in the first century BCE like the one excavated at Gamla in the north of Israel. But our first written evidence from Judea is the inscription of Theodotus, written on stone in Greek and found in Jerusalem. It dates from the time of Jesus, and it tells us how Theodotus built a synagogue for reading the law and studying the commandments and the hostel and the rooms and the water installations to provide from the needy guests from abroad. Interestingly, it doesn't mention prayer. 
It's quite possible that most towns and villages didn't have special synagogue buildings till later on. Many beautiful examples with elaborate mosaic floors have been found from the 3rd and 4th centuries CE. But during Jesus' lifetime, synagogue buildings seem to have been plain halls, sometimes with stone steps around the inner walls, which served as seating. The ark, or cupboard, that held the Torah scrolls was probably portable and made of wood, unlike the stone arcs that had been excavated in later Judean and Diaspora synagogues. Nor did these early synagogues have rabbis. At this time, rabbi was a rather general title, literally meaning my master. It was used for wise men and sages, but never appears in connection with synagogues, which seemed to have been run by the local elders and influential townsfolk, like our friend Theodotus, whose inscription tells us that he was an archisynagogus, a synagogue leader, like his father and his grandfather. We also have inscriptions from Rome that speak of important women as mothers of the synagogue. In rural Judea, those who went to synagogue were local residents, all Jewish. In the larger cities and in the diaspora, however, non-Jews, converts to Judaism, and people described as God-fearers attended. Women are often mentioned as going to synagogue, for instance, by the Jewish historian Josephus and by the New Testament. There is no mention of separate seating for men and women like that found in modern Orthodox Jewish synagogues, nor is there any evidence for it in the archaeological remains. It probably developed in the early Middle Ages, possibly as a result of Christian influence, since early churches often had separate seating for men and women. The different functions of the synagogue are reflected in the different names used for it in the ancient texts, which include place of prayer, holy place, place of instruction, and Sabbath meeting place. In spite of all these different functions, however, the most important activity that took place in synagogues seems to have been worship. But what did it consist of? Surprisingly enough, all the evidence bears witness to the fact that the main worship activity there was the reading of the Torah and of extracts from the biblical prophetic books with accompanying ceremonies. In Judea, this was perhaps the only formal activity performed in the synagogue, apart from a sermon from a preacher or darshan interpreting the weekly Torah reading. Was communal prayer also a feature of synagogue life in Judea? It's not clear. There does not seem to have been a fully fixed liturgy either, though some elements of later Jewish liturgy, such as the Shema, three passages from the Torah focusing on God's oneness and his commandments, and the Amida, a series of blessings, do seem to have been developing at this time. However, we do know about some communal religious activities that may not have happened in a synagogue. Many priests didn't live in Jerusalem, so to give all of them an opportunity of serving in the temple, they were divided into 24 mishmarot, guards or watches, a practice that is described both in the Bible and in the later Mishnah, a key Jewish text compiled around 200 CE. Each mishmar of priests served for a week and was accompanied by a corresponding mishmar of Levites and also a mishmar of Israelites who were not priests. Not all the members of a mishmar would go up to Jerusalem to participate, but many did, 
even of the Israelites, in order to be there as representatives of the entire people. The priests of the Mishmar were responsible for carrying out all the sacrifices and priestly duties at the temple for a week, from one Sabbath to the next. The members of the Mishmar who were present in the temple would fast from morning to night, from Monday to Thursday, and were subject to several rules and restrictions. But those Israelites who could not go up to Jerusalem with their Mishmar used to congregate at home in their towns. They prayed for the sacrifices to be accepted, and they read the story of the creation from the book of Genesis. Clearly, they felt involved in the temple worship, and some scholars have suggested that this is how synagogues and communal prayer outside the temple came into being. In addition, the Mishnah describes public fasting ceremonies, usually during droughts, when the population gathered in the town square, and these may have eventually moved into synagogues. Perhaps this process went faster in the large cities of Judea, which had very mixed populations. Not only Jews lived there, but also members of many different ethnic groups and religions. Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, and others, who might worship many different deities, including the Roman Emperor and the goddess Roma, the twin symbols of the vast Roman Empire who were honoured at all public ceremonies. Pagan temples and standard Roman amenities, such as bathhouses, theatres, and an official forum for public affairs and business, would have distinguished the larger cosmopolitan towns from the small Jewish villages. The common language of the towns was Greek, with some Latin used by the authorities, while the villages were more likely to speak Aramaic, a language closely related to Hebrew, which was what Jesus himself spoke. Hebrew itself may still have been spoken in a few places in the Galilee, but by now it was mostly a sacred language known only to scholars and sages. Many Jews would have been bilingual in Aramaic and Greek, or would at least have had some knowledge of a second language. In addition, outside Judea, there were two large diaspora communities of Jews. One was in Babylonia, modern Iraq, descended from those Judeans who had not returned from the Babylonian exile. And by now, this was a large and important community. The other large Jewish community was in Egypt, largely descended from refugees from the Babylonian invasion who had fled there. By this time, the Jews of Egypt spoke Greek and had evolved their own distinctive Hellenistic Jewish culture, complete with their own philosophers, such as Philo, whose works have survived. Though they still regarded the Jerusalem temple as their religious centre, they would have seemed very different and foreign to the rural Jews of Judea. Even within Judea, however, there were different kinds of Jews. Both the New Testament and the historian Josephus speak of groups known as Pharisees and Sadducees, though our information about them is very incomplete and may be coloured by the attitudes of the authors who wrote about them. We don't have much sense of how many people were involved in these groups or of how influential they were. We don't even know whether some Jews belonged to more than one of these groups, and it is quite possible that most Jews thought of themselves as just Jewish and didn't belong to any of the groups. Josephus mainly describes their theological differences, but says next to nothing about their everyday practices. Other groups are mentioned by the Egyptian Jewish author Philo, who describes communities of male and female ascetics who lived communally, 
In some ways, they resemble the all-male celibate sect that Josephus calls the Essenes, who may or may not be the same as the group who lived near Qumran by the Dead Sea and who probably produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have completely changed our understanding of the different varieties of Judaism that were around in the first century CE. Although we don't have full details of the different ways of life of these different Jewish groups, it does seem that they had certain things in common. As well as believing in one God, who had given his Torah to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, they all seem to have practiced the circumcision of boys on the eighth day after birth, as well as marking the Sabbath and keeping the dietary laws. Though we don't have much detail about what that involved at this stage. There were probably arguments about exactly how these commandments should be observed, and traces of this can be seen in the New Testament and in later texts, such as the Mishnah. All the Jewish groups probably observed the prohibition on eating pigs and on eating meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols, but it is not at all clear whether the complete separation between milk and meat products that had become standard by the time of the Mishnah at the end of the second century and continues today, was actually observed at the time of Jesus. Nor did everyone agree on exactly which types of activity were prohibited on the Sabbath, as can be seen in the New Testament. Another feature that seems to have characterized most, if not all, of these different groups of Jews was the lower status and power of women, though we do know of several exceptions. Women's status may even have declined somewhat since biblical times, when many powerful women featured in important roles in biblical stories. And some scholars have suggested that this might have been due to the influence of Hellenistic culture, in which women had a much lower position than in biblical, or indeed in later Jewish, society. Women were, of course, central in their role as mothers, and also in agricultural work. Not only did they work in the fields, but they also were usually the main producers of the cloth needed to clothe their family and furnish their houses. Textile samples that have survived in this period show that wool was the most common fabric, followed by linen and then by cotton, which seems to have been introduced to Judea at about this time. Women cleaned and spun the wool on drop spindles, a time-consuming and endless task, and then wove the yarn into cloth on vertical or horizontal looms. They probably also dyed the yarn and made the cloth they wove into tunics and cloaks. As well as being highly skilled craftswomen, we know of women who owned land and engaged in trade. Documents found in a cave near the Dead Sea tell us about Babata, a Jewish woman who lived in the early 2nd century CE, who inherited several date palm orchards from her father and loaned money to her second husband, this indicates that she retained control of her property and money after marriage, which would not have been the case for contemporary Roman women. After her husband's death, she took her co-wife to court for the disposal of their husband's property. Babata's archive reminds us that the picture we often get from texts of the time, always written by men, may not actually reflect what things were like in everyday life. This is almost certainly true of much of our picture of everyday life in the time of Jesus, and new archaeological finds, both of documents and other material, may lead us to change and refine our understanding in the future. So to summarise, let's just look at five main points. 
There were many different ways of being Jewish at the time of Jesus, as there are today, and a lot depended on where you lived. The temple was a central feature of Jewish life at the time, religiously and economically. Synagogues were beginning to develop, a process that speeded up after the destruction of the Second Temple and the end of sacrifices in 70 CE, after Jesus' lifetime. Women were definitely not equal to men in Jewish society, but did play important roles, even as landowners and merchants. And finally, Jesus was very much a man of his time and his place, deeply involved in his Jewish society and Jewish culture, as we can see throughout the Gospels 